y'all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Scroll, and today we're sitting down with Rachel Rose Lucky, who is an RVNC, that's Rampart Village Neighborhood Council member, and also one of only 16 openly transgender public officials in the United States. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, on a nice, cool day in L.A. Yeah, it's been not a summer. It's a little bit weird. Yeah, we're getting there, though. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to ask, uh, with the uh, RVNC and neighborhood councils in general, what led you to getting involved there? Because it's something in L.A. that a lot of people don't know about um, and don't really understand the amount of power that can be accessed there. Um, well, the first thing I need to say is is that um, right now I'm not representing the RVNC in my comments. I just need to make sure that that's uh, out there. Um, neighborhood councils in general, and we just added, I believe, a 98th one, um, are advisory to City Hall, and they were set up by... Um, through the city charter to uh, bring some tr- some extra transparency to City Hall and to have an extra uh, place where stakeholders, um, you know, the average uh, citizen, can go and uh, make their voices heard. So that's kind of what neighborhood councils are in a nutshell. Um, we do get uh, um, we do get budgets of about $37,000 a year, uh, which gives us a little bit of uh, go money to try and uh, improve our neighborhoods and outreach uh, to make sure that uh, folks know what's available as far as city services are concerned. And how have you guys been using your budget this year? Like, what kind of initiatives did you guys back? Well, um, let's see, last May we did a, um, uh, we did a block party. That was pretty awesome. Um, uh, basically, one of the things that we've been involved in is is giving out neighborhood purpose grants, um, which uh, anybody can come, especially uh, nonprofits, can come to an, to a neighborhood council and uh, request uh, a neighborhood purpose grant, uh, which uh, can be used for a number of different uh, uh, community uh, uh, efforts and, and things like that. And outside of uh, funding, uh, what other lines of communication do you have to City Hall? Because it's not just that you guys are given money, um, but you also have, as you said, a little bit of accountability with the people who are sitting above you on the, the hierarchy. Right. Um, one of the things that we have is that when when we go to open chamber at City Hall for City Council, um, we actually have a seat up front. <laughs> um, also, instead of the measly little one minute for public comment, uh, neighborhood councils are given five minutes, uh, which can make a big difference when you're trying to argue your point and, and trying to trying to get over, you know, get your point over, uh, because it, you can say a lot in a minute, but it goes by really quick. <laughs> And also the the city council that we have here being so small and so powerful, like their time is insanely valuable just because there's so little of it to go around. Uh, and you're in uh, Council District 10, I believe, right? 13. 13. Okay, so you are well, you're, actually, you're Rampart Village, there are actually three council districts that intersect. Oh, that Rampart Village. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, it makes it simple. All right. Um, um, we have uh, City 13 primarily. Then uh, south of 3rd Street um, is uh, CD1. And then uh, part of CD10, uh, I believe, um, is uh, we have, we have uh, Lafayette Park. Mm-hmm. 
in our in our uh, neighborhood council uh, boundaries, and I believe that's where we get um, CD10 from. But we've got three di- two different area codes, three different zip codes. Um, it's uh, the, in this very small space. There are so many things that intersect in Rampart Village. It's it's really unbelievable. And I wanted to touch on that because the the name Rampart in a lot of people's minds is going to be synonymous with like a very bad police scandal. LAPD basically doing the shield in real life. But Rampart's a lot bigger than just that scandal. So tell me a little bit about the neighborhood. Well, um, first of all, I think that it's been so long that the stigma has gone mm-hmm. uh, they, they took the old police station and made it uh, revamped it and made it into uh, I, th- I think it's more like a SWAT type of place now um, and um, but one of the things that we call Rampart Village uh, at least within the neighborhood council is that Rampart Village is a crossroads of diversity we have part of uh, Hi-Fi, historic Filipino town that comes into Rampart Village. We have Koreatown that starts at 3rd Street because uh, the Rampart Village uh, Neighborhood Council encompasses down to 6th Street. Uh, we have a uh, little Bangladesh that, that uh, they come in, they're right across the street, uh, right across from Fremont Avenue from us, uh, and they hold events at uh, Virgil Middle School and Chateau Park. We have uh, two, well, three parks, including Lafayette. Um, and, um, you know, basically it's it's a lot of, of residents. Um, it's, not, it's not really commercially built up, which uh, really gives it a, a um, kind of an old world charm, to be honest with you. So talking about uh, historic Filipino town and Koreatown, uh, those have been in the news because of the proposed design district. And there are also, uh, there's a, the fight on over the shelter in Koreatown. And I was hoping you might touch a little bit about uh, the concerns that you guys are seeing as development uh, accelerates in those neighborhoods and threatens to displace a lot of these historically diverse populations. That's one of the things that being on the board at Rampart Village is both uh, wonderful and challenging. Uh, the wonderful part is is that we do have such an intersection of cultures. Um, and uh, the hard part is is that uh, we can weigh in on Hi-Fi, Koreatown, you know, part of the Westlake uh, community plan comes into Rampart Village, so we can weigh in on Westlake, um, as well as the Wilshire community plan comes in. Um, And when we're talking about community plans, um, we're talking about the general plan is being updated by the city right now. um, And... uh, that is basically the future of land use. And then from, from that, community plans are developed, which are more detailed towards the neighborhoods. And so up until now, um, these plans have not been updated in a very, very long time, even though they're requ- it's required by state law and uh, to be updated. And so what the city has been doing is basically piecemealing, patchworking, you know, putting band-aids on things by passing different kinds of ordinances, overlays, uh, you know, historical overlays, um, uh, you know, 
uh, transit-oriented community overlays. And in this case, the North Westlake Design Ordinance, some people are calling it a design district, but it's actually what we're really not happy with is the design ordinance. And it, this ordinance, uh, in its original form, had a list of businesses that would be prohibitive, be prohibited by this uh, ordinance and auto body shops. Well, where I live, right behind the public storage building, there are probably three or four different auto body, auto mechanic uh, types of businesses uh, within like a block or two. So, um, you know, in that original list of prohibited businesses, these are businesses that are run by mostly people of color. And so, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the second reiteration of the design ordinance, um, they actually, quote unquote, took those out. Although that list still exists with, within the Department of Planning's file. Huh. So they've sort of eliminated, but not totally eliminated those prohibitions. Basically, if the ordinance were to go to committee, uh, city council committee, and then on to the full city council, everything in that file is debatable. Oh, okay. So if other council members think that that list is a good idea, and with the way things work, in, within City Hall and, and the uh, City Council is that each council member pays difference to the other council members when it comes to issues within their own districts, which, you know, kind of makes sense. But at the same time, you know, there might be, is, you know, bigger issues. Um, so, um, or ramifications from decisions. Um, so in this particular case with the design ordinance, um, you know, there's that. Um, that they could, you know, definitely bring that back. Um, and then uh, the, the other thing that I find is that is problematic is that along the corridors that they're talking about, which was which is Beverly Temple, Beverly, and Third Street, and then uh, Northwest uh, would be Al uh, Northwest direction would be Alvarado, but along like Third Street in Rampart Village. Uh, as well as Temple, um, there are a lot of apartment buildings. Now, the existing community plan already calls for uh, the potential for commercial development along those stretches. But with this design ordinance, to me, it's like you might as well put up a great big neon sign, blinking sign saying, come and develop here. And, you know, we know what comes with, with this kind of development. Uh, what comes with it is uh, gentrification and the resultant displacement. And I know this is uh, uh, an issue specifically for the Filipino community. Uh, I know uh, Philip from the, the Tribal Cafe uh, has expressed a lot of uh, discomfort with what they're planning on doing. There's a lot of community organizing going on around this. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and sort of how the neighborhood is responding to these threats. Well, almost a year ago, well, about a year ago about this time, um, <clears throat> the 
planning department held a town hall as part of their quote-unquote community outreach. Um, and I would say there was over 100 people that showed up, took their time out of their, their evenings, and came down and showed up. And there were only two people that whole night out of all of the comments that were made that were in favor of this. So, you know, it, it, to me it really comes down to why is the councilman in CD13 so gung-ho to make this happen that he would continue to push this even after an, a decent sampling of the citizenry say, no, we don't want this. And, and just to jump in, uh, the council member in question is Mitchell Farrell. I that is correct. Yeah. Um, it, it just it just boggles my brain to think that here are your constituents, and they're telling you point blank they don't want this. And yet, oh, we'll go back and, you know, with the planning department and we will make adjustments. Mm. To me, the major problem with what goes on in City Hall and the planning department is that they will make decisions with very little to no community input in the initial stages. And then once they've pretty much made the all the decisions they're gonna make, and you know this is what it's gonna be, then they will try to sell it to the community. To me, that's backwards. And do you feel like the the criticisms that we're seeing over the Koreatown shelter sort of mirror that, where we have this disconnect between city council and uh, the communities they're attempting to change, even if those plans might be for the better, like building a homeless shelter? Well, <laughs> and there are a couple of council members that are on board with this temporary homeless shelter, and I give them props for that. But we also have to realize that right now, there are over 50, according to Curbed LA, there are over 50 mega projects, what I would call mega projects, developments planned for Koreatown. And it's just a, a question of, I mean, it's just a question of time when that marches north, you know, downtown marches west. And, you know, already we're seeing Westlake starting to be taken over as well so you know with that uh, lake on wilshire project oh, yeah. the most god-awful ugly building i have ever seen in my life and i'm an architectural designer of 20 years so you know i i don't i don't i, I just don't know what to to say to these folks when you know i've been trying to get this question answered and Everybody that I've asked this question to has pretty much given me the same answer. And the question is this. Who in City Hall is protecting, standing up for the people that make $25,000 a year? 
because that's what we're talking about. 12 bucks an hour. That's who are being displaced at an alarming rate. 14,000 families displaced out of Hollywood. 23,000 RSO units lost since 2001 due to, due to the Ellis Act. You know, letting these developers and the, these investors have carte blanche on our city who is standing up for the person that actually put these folks in office? And for a lot of folks, like with, with uh, Mitch here, I believe his last election saw a turnout of less than 20%. I know it was was far below 20 uh, We helped get the numbers up from the last off-year election was like 8%. It never seems like a lot of these council members really have a mandate. Like, they don't do a lot of work to, like, get people excited and get people out. They more seem like salesmen who just want to assume their job is ready um, or is just kind of ready and waiting for them, and then, like, people will follow them. Uh, what kind of pressure have you guys been applying to them? Like, how do you think we go after these guys and get them to listen? Well, as a neighborhood council, as a board member of, the, of a neighborhood council, all I can do is <clears throat> introduce motions and see if I can get them passed by my neighborhood council. And then if there's city city council files that are open on a particular subject, that's one of the other advantages a neighborhood council has, uh, is that we are able to put community impact statements directly in to the, the city clerks and the council files so that when any council member or anybody in the public, staff, whatever, uh, go to look at, at you know what's available for documentation on a particular issue um, you will see community impact statements from different neighborhood councils and so that's one way that we can make our voices heard now do they have to listen to us no we're only advisory but what we can do is organize town halls we can make sure that the public has the right information and the correct information um, and to make sure that, that they know that certain things are coming up and, and you know, letting people know that this issue is coming up. If you're, you know, ex uh, if you have a problem with this issue, um, now's your time to go down to City Hall. <laughs> and, and this leads uh, so I want to talk about the organizing uh, that you're able to do from the position that you have now and how you're able to connect uh, directly with the community and sort of create new engagements and new avenues for power for the people who, who live in your district. That's a really good question. As, as a city official, I have found that when I call the city, uh, whether it's an agency or a department uh, about, you know, whatever, what have you, um, that I'm immediately recognized where, uh, you know, the average stakeholder could make the same phone call and maybe not get the, the kind of response uh, that, that I've been able to get. Um, that, I've known that, noticed that as, as a big difference. Um, also, um, again, you know, we can put together meetings um, and, um, you know, like town halls and community meetings and things like that. Um, you know, Basically, the strength of a neighborhood council 
comes from how active the stakeholders are in that neighborhood council because our power comes from the voices of the community you know when when Mitchell Farrell's office asked me okay how, how did you arrive at this particular position as a neighborhood council I can say well we held a town hall and there were X amount of people that said that this is and we also put a motion we held a board meeting open board meeting and people came and gave their opinions um, as as a as a as a city official holding elected office um, I tend to go with what the community wants like the design ordinance. If the community was f all fine with the design ordinance, I personally wouldn't have anything to say about it um, as a board member. So, you know, the, there has to be that kind of um, separation between my own personal feelings as as an activist, as an advocate, uh, and and, you know, how I how I work on the board as well. Not to say that you know my own personal feelings don't come into play at, at points, but um, you know for the most part. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask because, uh, as we noted, there there are ninety eight uh, neighborhood councils. I believe the newest one is the one out in Westwood that they just voted to split one of the councils. Uh, do you do a lot of coordinating with the other neighborhood councils, and do you see that as an area where we could grow more power? Because it seems like we have this sort of network of um, uh, uh, neighborhood councils across the city that don't really coordinate or work as one. They all sort of seem a little bit isolated, even if they're next door to each other. Um, no, actually, we do have alliances. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rampart Village Neighborhood Council belongs to Lank, uh, Los Angeles Neighborhood Council Alliance or something, I don't know. Um, and um, I just recently started going to ARC, oh, okay. uh, which is the Alliance of River Communities, which Rampart Village somehow is, I still don't understand how we're, we're in that alliance. But This is the, the LA River, I assume, is the river it's yes. referring to. And, um, but we have done, you know, Department of Neighborhood Empowerment, uh, you know, who, who uh, you know, assist neighborhood councils. Um, they put us in 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 that in that alliance, and uh, you know, I've been going to those meetings recently. So um, for me personally, uh, I've only been on the board for a little over a year, and um, the first year, I spent you know kind of learning the ropes a little bit and um, doing what I can to to strengthen uh, the Rampart Village Neighborhood Council um, and getting. Uh, a lot of the foundation laid. So this second year, I'm really hoping to uh, be able to to be more out and about, uh, you know, away from Rampart Village. And uh, it, uh, before we kind of close this off, do you uh, are you aspiring to higher office from here, or do you see a lot more promise in neighborhood council? Or where do you see yourself like kind of going on this trajectory?
about 20 months ago, um, I decided to run for office. And uh, the office that I decided to, to run for was neighborhood council. Um, prior to that, I was um, a, an officer with the Stonewall Democratic Club. I was vice president of communications. If, no, if uh, folks don't know what, uh, who they are, a uh, 42-year-old LGBTQ political organization uh, founded by Morris Kite, who also founded the uh, LGBT Center and started the Gay Pride Parade here in Los Angeles. Um, and when I joined Stonewall, um, one of the things that I spoke to the transgender community a, a lot about was the need for transgender representation at the table when it comes to uh, government. In other words, we need transgender people involved in the political process and or running for office. And after that kind of fell on deaf ears, uh, 20 months ago, I decided I was going to run for office and put my money where my mouth is. So uh, in answer, <laughs> that's a long way around to answer your question. Um, yes, I do plan on running for higher office, what office we'll see. But, um, you know, I hope that, you know, to some degree, my story, which I think is fairly well known in the transgender community, has spurred uh, what, what uh, I, th I think you said was uh, uh, about 40 candidates right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there's uh, in the primaries, there's uh, about 40 candidates. And there were a couple of notable victories uh, earlier this year with uh, Danica Rome we, in uh, Virginia. Virginia. We doubled last year. Which, which unfortunately, eight. Yeah, which unfortunately is a very small number for the number of elected officials here in America, <laughs> like sadly. But I wanted to ask on a personal issue or on a, a personal note, um, you know, I, I, I like to say all politics is personal. Uh, for me, my political entrance as like a cis white guy, not very like impactful, like nothing really sticks out when like a white guy wins an office. I don't really get excited about that. Um, and I wondered, you know, you're coming at it from a different place where it seems like things that you do in your entrance into the public space is necessarily more political than mine, not because you necessarily want to make it, though you've made a point of doing that. But I was wondering if you could talk about that and kind of talk about the tensions that you find when trying to like run for public office and be in the public eye and also have your own personal life and your own personal story. It occurred to me three or four years ago that as a transgender American, I am extremely fortunate to have transitioned in Los Angeles, where we have some of the strongest, between California and Los Angeles proper, we have some of the strongest anti-hate uh, uh, anti against transgender people. Um, and so that, to me, said that because I do have that freedom, that I, I also have the responsibility to stand up for and speak out for those who do not. Right now, in 32 states, it is legal to fire somebody for transitioning on the job. In 32 states, it is legal to deny a transgender person housing. In 32 states, it is legal 
to deny a transgender person medical care. These are all life-threatening situations. You don't have a job. You don't have a place to live. And you get sick and ill. So, I have done everything I can to make my voice be as heard be be heard by as many people as I possibly can. I'm you know very active on social media, and um, I think that by running for office, even if I don't win, just the fact that I'm running for office, like um, Kristen Beck the Navy SEAL who, who transitioned after 20 years of, of you know, <laughs> being a Navy SEAL. Um, you know, even though she lost against an incumbent, a very well-liked incumbent, it wasn't, it wasn't the point of win or lose. It was the point that while she was running, she had spotlight and was able to get the message out that we as transgender Americans have the right to live our lives without interference from evangelical Christians and the Trump, the Trump administration and the GOP. We have the un, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness just like any other American. And when you try and deny me through some sort of faux religious freedom restoration freaking act, you are denying what our forefathers set up with the Constitution. I am, I am, as Rachel Maddow said, rights are not debatable. We either have protections for them or we don't, but the right is always there. And so for folks with a certain dogma, who are stuck in certain dogma to try and deny me, an American citizen, my rights? Well, I, you know, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how the pendulum swings back in November. That's all I got to say about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. That uh, we we see a reactionary backlash, and then we see people speak up about it. Um, and I think it also points to the fact that even though rights as they are supposed to be enshrined, it's supposed to be given, you have to seize and hold that space. You can't allow that to lapse. Uh, and I wanted to, to ask you, because uh, we were chatting a little bit before, uh, about your social media presence and how you sort of run that one, because I'm sure you attract all sorts of trolls and horrible people, but how you kind of run that part of your life also uh, while being a good advocate, but also I'm not like smashing your computer on the ground. <laughs> There have been a couple of times I want to throw it out the window. Uh, <laughs> That's why I don't watch Fox News. I just black oh, out. Yeah. There's a broken TV. And... Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> when I first started on Facebook, and for like the first while, um, yeah, there, there was some folks that came at me. Uh, but... Here's the thing. I didn't block them. I had a discussion with them. And sometimes it was heated. But I always, at the end of the day, let them know that I love them. I don't hate anybody. 
is that is that hard to express? No. Three simplest words in the world to speak. I love you. And and you know, mean it. <laughs> I mean, I don't even hate Donald Trump. And I, I think he's the, you know, <laughs> he's not worth the five dollars worth of chemicals that are left over when you extract the water. So um, <laughs> he's laughing. No, I came up with that one day because I had read that the the chemicals that are left over from the human body after you take all the water away on the open market are worth five dollars <laughs> yeah. I, I think the most valuable thing in us is the phosphorus <laughs> is yeah yeah because you can actually do something most of it's just like innate garbage right. you can't really do much with it <laughs> but uh um oh i saw i'm sorry i totally sidetracked the no no that that's okay but that also like that is that something you had to learn that kind of patience because i don't think i would have that um you know i'm like I, I'm a type one diabetic and I tend to be try and be a good advocate for like disability issues and stuff. But I still like get to a point with some people who say really dumb stuff where I'm just like, I would rather write you off and walk away and move on. Did you was it did it come naturally to you to try and embrace the people who are coming after you or, or did you decide to proactively engage them? I'm old enough to be on the tail end of basically the hippie movement. And so, you know that kind of thing is always in in my you know in the back of my head also um even though i am wiccan i uh <laughs> i've also come from a christian background and to me uh to be christ-like is to love unconditionally all of our human brothers, sisters, and siblings. That's unconditional. That was his message. And that's what disturbs me so much about folks on the right who wear their religion on their sleeves and weaponize their holy scripture. To me, the weaponization of of religion, you know, of religion of peace and love, the weaponization of that to me is the textbook definition of what evil is. And when you when you kind of meet that, when you confront that, how do you do self-care for yourself? Because I imagine it's, it's emotionally taxing. You're doing a, a lot of emotional labor to explain to these people like, hey, you're just kind of wrong, but that's got to take something out of you. Well, um, First of all, my grandmother used to say I had the patience of Job <laughs> when I was a kid. I used to do, mo you know, put models together and things like that. I was always tinkering with something. Um, as far as, you know, self-care and things like that, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy what I do. And, again, you know, a lot of times I don't write to change the opinion of the opposition, I write so that they won't change the opinions of others. Otherwise, it'd be a complete waste of my time. That's a really, That's a really interesting philosophy on it. It, it, um, it. Not aiming to to necessarily engage and directly confront that person, but to know there are other people watching you and other people making judgments, and that you want to 
keep those people on sort of the right path or at least have the right right ideas in mind. Um, and I wanted to, to ask, because you seem very good at this, for those of us that like are fighting with people online, I, I find myself doing that more and more as I get more into well, I've, I've told more than one person to go screw themselves, but you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not perfect. But, but I was going to say where, you know, how in your mind do you strike a balance between like uh, listening to people who are critics or, or, you know, in the parlance, uh, haters uh, versus the people who are there to support you and support you unconditionally, because it's easy, I found to get lost in that kind of echo chamber where you begin to believe that everyone around you, you know, believes what you believe, they're they're on your side. It's hard to necessarily break out if you only listen to one side. Well, that's one of the reasons I've only blocked 39 people in the whole time I've been on Facebook. Um, and my 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 personal wall is is wide open. Mm-hmm. It's public. It's wow. all it always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't put posts up there that and, and mark them friends only. Mm. Um, I believe that dialogue and discourse is fundamental to our way of life as Americans. Um, and as long as it doesn't escalate beyond words, and yeah, words can be hurtful and things like that, but, you know... A, until it escalates to a point of two gay men walking down the street the other day and both getting stabbed because they were holding hands. That happened. Yeah. And that happened by somebody who was very, very hateful. Um, I think that it's very important to identify these people. Like, a lot of these... Uh, mass shooters you know there were indications all over their Facebook pages and their Twitter accounts you know ahead of time and hopefully we're learning from that and hopefully law enforcement is learning from that um, that you know when when somebody reports hey you know this person's on the edge uh, that they'll listen no, that, that makes sense. I got to, to tell a personal story. My dad was kind of a terrible person, uh, and he used to get drunk and brag about how he would, you know, when he was at UCLA, would go to West Hollywood and beat up gay guys who came out of the bar drunk and be very proud of himself. Yeah, like literally. And you're like, eh, maybe don't tell those stories in public and also like stand farther away from me, dad. Uh, but it was weird because in his mind, he was exerting some type of power, but it never really clicked with him why people weren't more afraid, like why that brand of virulent, violent uh, homophobia for uh, comparatively has, has decreased and is not nearly as societally acceptable. Um, and what do you think is the answer to that? Just people continuing to do what they're doing to force this conversation? Um, you know, how do we blunt those attacks? Because it's always, to an extent, n- not inevitable that it's going to be there, but there's enough people who are confused enough about themselves that they think violence on others is going to solve something or make something better? The answer to that is twofold, in my observation. One is uh, the gay and lesbian uh, liberation movement. What made the difference in that was that gay gay and lesbian folks came out of the closet and all of a sudden Aunt Betty... And Joe down the street were gay. And these are people that you've known either all your life or 20 or 30 years. 
and maybe you kind of suspected a little bit, but nobody ever talked about it, et cetera, et cetera. And then when they came out of the closet, then all of a sudden here, here it was in your face and you had to deal with it, but you had to deal with it with someone that you already loved. When, when the, the people who are being ostracized are faceless, then it is easy to throw a, throw a punch, to take a swing. But when they are people that you have known and cared about, it is that much more difficult. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. And the reason, the reason I know this is because we, I, I as a transgender activist had to look at how our movement could advance forward. And when I first uh, started my transition five years ago, the statistic was that only roughly 10% of the American population even ever met a transgender person before. Last year, I heard that number was around 30%. And to some degree, I think that there has been more acceptance. At the same time, we now have a we now have an air coming from Washington, D.C., mainly Donald Trump, uh, what, we, what we call the Trump effect. And basically, you know, since the, you see, even before the, the election, but especially afterwards, we, we, in the LGBTQ community, we have seen a, a very big increase in school building. And that's where, you know, it's like it's like Lord of the Flies, you know, you, you kind of can see how on that level with with the kids, how that can, you know, how it's kind of almost kind of unregulated to some extent and how that can be viewed, you know, in the quote unquote adult world. Um, and, you know, it, it just it, it just astounds me and it makes it really hurts my heart that people can be this cruel to each other and then turn around and say that they believe in, you know, uh, uh, you know, their Lord and Savior, who is supposed to be the Prince of Peace. Um, you know, it's just, again, a boggles my brain <laughs> yeah it, it, it's, 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 it is a little bit confusing having grown up in a very uh conservative catholic church that was always weird to me about how much like hate and judgment there would be in the sermons and it's like peace be with you and we love you and it's like but the whole thing about like not liking these people or not trusting like democrats and it it, it always seemed very weird and very confused to me uh with that in mind what do you think is the best move for the movement from here? Uh, it, more people running for office, more visibility, um, more coalescing together. Like, what do you hope to see over the next couple of election cycles? Well, um, I said there was two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, having transgender people, have, having, you know, the cisgender community <clears throat> get to know transgender folks, you know, I... 
the transgender people that I know are some of the most loving, artistic, smart people I have ever met in my whole entire life. So that's one. And secondly, as, as I said before, we need a seat at the table. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean elected office either, you know, neighborhood council or neighborhood association or, um, you know, whatever. One of the things I decided to do uh, about the same time I decided to run for office was I decided to kind of pull, my, pull away from uh, transgender spaces. And because um, before that, I had been, you know, going to a lot of the transgender meetings and, you know, folks. And, and you know, I, I didn't do that because of the community. I did that because, especially now that I'm in the neighborhood council, I get invited to a lot of things. Um, LASA, for instance, you know, the, the Los Angeles Homeless uh, Service Authority, you know, for L.A. County, um, held a, a three-day meeting, you know, and the first day I was there, I was the only transgender person in the room. And, you know, the first part of the day was kind of, uh, uh, you know, imparted, they, they imparted information to us. And then the second part of the day was we, you know, we were all sitting at tables. So we kind of broke into small groups, you know, at our tables. And because I was the only transgender person, the they were all curious, so it just, you know, without me trying to push it, they actually uh, were asking me questions, you know, and, 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 you know, specifically, you know, about homelessness and healthcare and things like that. And so they actually had me, uh, um, you know, when, when they were done, when everything was done, um, they had me stand up and, and kind of give a little report about what we talked about at the table. Um, at the beginning of the, of the meeting, of the beginning of the day, um, they had asked, out of the, you know, about 250 people in this room, they had asked, who in here is a, a homeless, ho homeless shelter provider? And about two-thirds of the room raised their hands. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... Here I am, I, I stood up and I, I basically said, look, you know, bottom line, if, if, there's, if somebody's a trans woman, put them in the women's facility. If somebody's a trans man, put them in the male facility, you know, um, just, you know, the regular dumb, stupid stuff. And, um, but I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't gotten outside of my comfort zone. I, I did the Emerge California class last year. Uh, it's, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a training program for Democratic women who want to run for office. And uh, <laughs> it was a one, um, one uh, lecturer, and she kept saying, and I find it to be true, more true every day, that we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and I think that that might be one of the underlying problems that we have as a society is that we, we want to be in our comfort zones, you know, but life doesn't work like that. Life is not uniform. And, you know, I, I enjoy being outside of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I've never feared, um, you know, trying something for the very first time, uh, trying something new or learning something new. Uh, but I think so many people are, 
and uh, you know they're, they're comfortable in their jobs they're they're comfortable in the in the reality shows that they watch when they get home they're comfortable eating the same meals you know every other day um, and, I, and I you know folks can correct me if I'm wrong but I really think that you know we get into our our own little comfortable world and then when something uncomfortable comes along it, it just you know totally upsets totally upsets their worlds mm-hmm. that makes it that makes a lot of sense and it's something I kind of notice also as I've gotten more into activism because LA is such a big diverse community and it's hard to get a good read on it when you just find your like happy place which for me is generally with the art school pirates which are great kids uh and you know i like you know welding bikes and doing all that stuff but they're not the most actively engaged they've sort of backed off from that um because the work of getting the city fixed is really long and pretty boring and very bureaucratic but at the same time is supremely supremely necessary and it seems like you're making a very good push to be an advocate and an activist in that space and opening up hopefully space for new people and so i want to ask as we close out you know what kind of is your advice for people looking to get into the space and to make a difference do you necessarily uh suggest they go into politics i know you've you've said that's not the only one but where do you see key areas for people to seize power as we move forward everything that i've said about you know the transgender community as far as you know having have, needing to have a seat at the table uh, i think has is universally recognized by any uh, group that has been ostracized um, and so you know i think that continuing continually being engaged and yeah, it, it, it can't. I mean, I'm a geek. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I mean, I love motions and I love, you know, I'll get on the city clerk's website and, you know, I'll, I'll read all that good stuff. Of Robert's Rules of Orders in your purse. Uh, I don't have one in my purse, but uh, I do have a lot of it in my noggin. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it can be dry. There's no doubt about that. But the exciting part is when somebody comes up to you and says, you made a difference in my life. And then my response is, go and make a difference in somebody else's life. And that's what we're really talking about. Being holed up in... (laughs) 30 years ago, I had a friend, and we were hanging out in my apartment. We're like, oh, you want to go somewhere? No, I don't know. And my friend turns to me and he goes, you know, you can't have a random encounter sitting in your apartment. And that's when we got up and we went down to Adams Morgan. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And, uh, you know, went and hung out. Um, You know, you, you, you can't expect things to get better if you don't put down the remote control and get your butt off the couch. It just won't happen. The same old, same old is going to continue to happen. And, you know, all I can do is, you know, I, I'm not looking to empower anyone. People have the power within them. I just hope that my story and the things that I do will inspire someone. You have this power. 
I'm hoping to inspire you. So just, you know, get involved, get active, do what it takes. I, I think that's a, a, a very good piece of advice and very powerful. And thank you very, very much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, just trying to think if I had any closing thoughts. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for inviting me down. Uh, this is awesome. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah, no, this has been a very good conversation, and thank you very, very much. And hopefully, we we look forward to doing more work uh, with you guys and with other neighborhood councils, uh, and and sort of exploring this city more because it's such an opaque, weird place. There's the Los Angeles that exists in the glossy photos and the tourism, and then there's like the actual LA. You know, it's every day I walk down Hollywood Boulevard to go to work, right, right on the the Walk of Fame, and it's such a strange mismatch of the people who actually live in LA, the people who come to live in LA. And then the people who kind of try and control the city, the police and the bids and all that stuff. And it's such a perfect microcosm where it's fun and exciting and glossy and also at the same time sad and, and kind of like depressing and a little bit struggling. And teasing out what this city is about is probably my favorite puzzle. Um, yeah, I've I've been here for almost 20 years and... I'm still trying to figure out what the city is about. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of the diversity. And to me, diversity is our strength. As a city, as a state, and as a country. And, you know, this this whole thing about, you know, immigration and, and immigrants and things like that, um, you know, that's the influx of people that we need to make sure that we don't become stagnant. Yeah. And I think that L.A. in particular has the ability to keep from being stagnant. Mm. Because we do have uh, people coming and going all the time. Um, when I first moved to L.A., I was told that 300,000 people come to Los Angeles, Hollywood, to seek their fame and fortune and within 12 months 90% of them go home <laughs> so uh, older, times. older times yeah well Rachel thank you very very much for joining us and you can check out the uh, Rampart Village Neighborhood Council through Empower LA and where can they find find you on the socials if they want uh, Rachel Rose Lucky just google me can't go wrong um there's only one of you you're 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 very unique yeah i am <laughs> um i guess the the spelling of my name will be on the uh, yeah yeah we'll put it in the description. <laughs> okay excellent. excellent well thank you very much all right thank you